Welcome to the Law360 Podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. On today's show, we'll welcome two guests, Jody Godoy and Stuart Bishop, who've been in court covering the second criminal case related to the fall of law firm Dewey and LaBeouf. Then we'll be joined by Abraham Musaka to take us through the legal industry developments from the week. And at the end of the show, we'll dive into just how much profanity you can put on Facebook before you lose the cover of labor law. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. And Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. So, guys, what are we going to talk about right up top here? Alex, I think you've had some big happenings on your beat. Yeah, the trade beat. I'm excited. I thought we talked about not bringing our own beats into this. <laughs> we did. You can uh, bring we've... it when it's a really big story, and we have a resident expert right here in this the booth. Is a, this is a good one. This, okay. this on the heels of likeness rights and its interplay with tax law? I don't That's know. True. Right, That's anyway, true. Anyway. What do you have for us? So, in the past week, the Trump administration has gotten a little creative with how it's enforcing U.S. trade laws. Uh, the basics are are as follows. They have opened two separate trade investigations, one focused on imports of steel and one focused on imports of aluminum. And they've done so under uh, using a a very sort of obscure trade statute that for our purposes is known as Section 232. It's from a 1962 like Cold War era trade law. And that law essentially allows the United States to impose trade restrictions if they deem certain imports to be a threat to national security. And while it hasn't, it actually hasn't been used since 2001. That was the last time mm-hmm. an investigation was conducted. And now the Trump administration has launched it, uh, has used it twice in one week. And this is also really unusual because there's no meaningful judicial challenge to this particular move, right? Well, yeah. And that's a part of the reason that it's so rarely invoked. Let's walk back a second. Sure. So what is the actual argument that, that, um, that the import of aluminum is hurting American uh, aluminum producers and that that's, ba- that's a, a national security risk? Well, this is, this is sort of important to, to note because the actual statute doesn't actually provide any guidance to the, <laughs> to, to the Commerce Department, which is the agency that's going to be investigating. Mm-hmm. It doesn't lay out any criteria for them to, to sort of diagnose a national security risk or say how high the risk should be in order to impose a trade restriction. But the general thought is that if you, if foreign imports are winnowing down the market share of U.S. steel or U.S. aluminum, and they're unable to meet the needs of the national defense industry, mm-hmm. that's a problem. So you just say national security, national security, national security, and you can put embargo. You can put, uh, I'm sorry, tariffs on whatever you want. Well, you said you slipped and said embargo, but here's the other thing about the law yeah. is that it also does not articulate what you can and can't do to address this problem. It just says the president is allowed to impose trade restrictions if he if, if he feels there's a national security Sounds risk. narrowly so this tailored. this is almost like, <laughs> to me, this reminds me of like what the Patriot Act did in, in certain yeah. contexts. It's like just a really broad thing in the, in the cause of national security And issues. this gets to what you had asked me, where there's, in, in U.S. courts, as we know, there's the courts basically just give a lot of deference to anything related to national security, and it'll stand mostly without significant legal challenge. The one area where it might come up for a challenge is in the World Trade Organization, where and that's that's different than litigation. That's essentially country to country arbitration, but you have a little more room to sort of get some geopolitics in there and maybe hammer out a solution. But the thing is, is that the World Trade Organization also has an exception for national security, and that's never been invoked. It's never been tested by a dispute settlement panel. And the fear of that is because once one country invokes it, and they'll presumably be given broad sort of leeway, like in domestic courts, then you open the door for 
any country to slap any kind of trade restriction it wants and just kind of cry national security. And you can see how there could become this this kind of like cascade of people walling off sensitive sectors of their economy, rising prices, stuff like that. It um, I, I, I always like to be a little measured and not there's a lot of like cries of trade war and stuff like this. And I try to keep that in check on the trade beat as best I can. But this is this has some pretty serious implications. And weren't there some additional developments just today, or was it yesterday, that the Commerce Secretary was saying yeah. they may do more of this? Yeah, and uh, like I said, they launched the they launched the steel case last Thursday, and the aluminum case was launched today. We're recording this Thursday. And while he was on the call uh, for briefing reporters on this new case, the Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, said, you can expect more of these. So it's gone, f- it, we're, we're standing at a point where it's basically... This could move from this very rarely invoked, almost third rail of U.S. trade policy to a standing tool of uh, our nation's trade policy. So, Wow, that is a big one. I'm glad yeah. you talked about your own beat because it's also a really complicated one to understand all the ins and outs. I'm sitting so. over here just sort of... <gasps> <laughs> yeah, totally. See, I, I, I didn't want that. Like, there's, there's, so, there's a lot of alarmist stuff in the trade press going on right now. It's really just something to really keep an eye on and see how broadly they conduct the probe and, yeah. and what kind of remedy they come yeah. up with. So that's our big picture story today. Let's focus on one that all of us will identify with um, because we use these services. We're going to talk about Lyft and Uber a yeah. bit. Bill, you brought that one. Let's... Yeah, so as if uh, Uber needed any more bad PR this year. Or uh, any more lawsuits yeah. involving them. They've uh, had a, what feels like a million. Yeah, so uh, they were sued on Monday uh, by a group of Lyft drivers who claims that Uber used spyware to surreptitiously monitor where they were. Um, <laughs> My favorite part of this is what the spyware was called. The spyware, Amber, thank you for setting that up, was called Hell. Which if you just, you know, if, if you want, the, really just treat everything as if you're eventually going to be sued or subpoenaed yeah. because uh, don't name something hell. Well, in fairness to them, it's named hell because they track their own drivers using one that's called like God view or heaven. Yeah, so I this saw is the just heaven the one. Opposite. But they're like, yeah. they're leaning into the villainy. Of I know. It. Well, <laughs> yeah. whatever. They're, they, so, they didn't, yeah. so the lawsuit claims that, uh, that this thing allowed that that Uber employees or Uber contractors uh, used essentially um, they they posed as Lyft customers to keep an eye on where all these people were, all these other all these Lyft drivers. Um, the goal, apparently, according to the lawsuit, was to find Lyft drivers who were driving for both companies, which we've all seen. Um, it's a thing that you see where they have the two sure. smartphones, and uh, and the idea being that if you could find those people, you could give them more incentives to drive only for Uber, which would deprive drivers from Lyft. Right. So they basically were coming at this not, they weren't going to punish the people that were driving for both. They wanted to induce them to prioritize Uber rides. Exactly. Right. So what kind of what kind of claims are they making? In this so case? the claim is, um, I think they called it illegal, surreptitious, and unauthorized remote electronic surveillance. Um, they claim cool. it's, uh, yeah, it's a real <laughs> mouthful. Um they say it violated state and federal uh, privacy laws and um, California's unfair competition statute. Okay. So um, it's mostly a privacy issue, the fact that they were surveilling them without without their awareness. So we said up top that this is, you know, one of a gazillion lawsuits mm-hmm. and they were already in some trouble. But let's talk a little bit more about that. What were some of the other things that were dragging Uber down? 
Yeah, Uber's had a bad year, um, to say the very least. There was uh, there was all the it was like hashtag delete Uber um, right when the airport protests were happening. After there the, was after a, the immigration ban. Yeah, exactly yeah. after Trump's immigration ban. Um, that was made worse by news that um, uh, Travis Kalanick, who is the CEO of Uber, um, was on the president's uh, economic advisory yeah. committee or council. He later removed himself, but the damage was done. Of course, um, yeah. There was after that a huge sex, uh, a huge sexual harassment scandal. Oh, yeah. um, the company ended up hiring. Um, I can't actually remember the law firm that he's working for now, but they hired um, former Attorney General Eric Holder to oversee. Oh, yeah. Covington, a, I, think. I believe it yeah. is Covington. Oh. Yeah, okay. um, they're probably thrilled that we have no idea. What <laughs> um, Wanton speculation. Uh, and on Sunday, um, right before this lawsuit was filed, the New York Times ran a very long piece profiling Kalanick that was sort of like. I could see like a crazy person thinking it was good press. Um, but I mean, it was, it painted him as this sort of, um, I have it written down, uh, that he openly disregarded many rules and norms. He flouted safety regulations and he was responsible for risk taking that pushed Uber beyond the pale, sometimes to the brink of implosion. So, so that's, that is a laundry list of bad PR, but also they've had a bunch of lawsuits. They've been sued about driver misclassification. Yeah. They've been sued about safety issues with drivers. Like there's a long, long list of well, lawsuits. Well, and they've fought regulations in, in cities around the country, or the you know, taxi regulations yeah, and since and, their inception. Exactly. Yeah. And they've, this this isn't even the first time Lyft drivers <laughs> have sued. Yeah. So. Uh last year Uber was uh it was hit with a similar class action um that accused them of using like burner cell phones to set up <laughs> fake Lyft accounts that would call rides from Lyft drivers like long distances, get them to drive to the middle of nowhere, and then cancel the ride at the last second to screw over the the Lyft driver to sort of to mess with the competition. They should um, they should come up with Uber, but for avoiding costly litigation. <laughs> <laughs> They should. I'm not saying this is not important. You're not important cases to pursue. Uber for not being. Yeah. Uber for not for not being an unfair competitor in the market. Yeah. Something like that. We can yeah. work. We, we we can workshop that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Anyway. Um, um, yeah. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, I think there's a lot of weird sort of wrinkles about like who has standing to bring this kind of suit and yeah. all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah. So it'll um, take some time to get worked out. Yeah. But, but one to watch. Yeah. Me. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, guys. A little later in the show, we'll be speaking with Jody Godoy and Stuart Bishop about the second trial over the collapse of Dewey and LaBeouf. But up first, we're going to take a look at legal industry happenings with Abraham Musacco and the Legal Industry Minute. Thanks, Amber. The former White House counsel for President Barack Obama is heading back to Kirkland and Ellis. W. Neil Eggleston, who served as the top attorney for the administration from 2014, is returning to Kirkland as a partner in its government, regulatory, and internal investigations practice group the firm announced on Monday. In other news, the lobbying numbers for the first quarter are in. According to info released in late April under the Lobbying Disclosure Act, Aiken, Gump, Strauss, Howard, and Feld led the pack with $9.13 million in lobbying work, followed by Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, Shrek with $6.64 million, and Squire, Pat, and Boggs with $5.81 million. And finally, Freed, Frank, Harris, Shriver, and Jacobson like many firms, has traditionally given bonuses to its attorneys. However, Freed Frank recently announced that it would also be giving bonuses to its administrative staff. In celebration of a firm-wide staff appreciation week, 
Freed Frank awarded bonuses equal to one week's salary. This has been the week in legal industry news. For our main story today, we're going to bid adieu to Dewey Part Dew. It's the second and hopefully final trial in the epic criminal case over the collapse of defunct white shoe firm Dewey and LaBeouf. The case is wrapping up this week and the jury is set to issue a verdict. They're going to start deliberating hopefully on Monday. So we're going to talk with our reporters about how it went and what comes next. Joining us today is Stuart Bishop and Jody Godoy, who've been in the courtroom for all of the action. Welcome, Jody and Stuart. Hi. Hello. Hey, guys. So, Stuart, can you set the scene for us? Tell us about how um, Dewey got in trouble in the first place and what has prompted these trials. Well, Dewey, for its short life, was a behemoth. It had about 1,100 lawyers, another 900 in administrative staff. It was a result of an October 2007 merger between two old-school New York firms, LaBeouf Lamb and Dewey Ballantyne. The timing of the merger was inauspicious, however. Uh, as soon as it was completed, the financial crisis hit, and Dewey struggled throughout its short life up until 2012 to make ends meet. It was over-leveraged in debt, and ultimately in 2012, partners started fleeing the firm in droves. And it went bankrupt after that, right? It went bankrupt. And it was how? about to merge uh, with Greenberg Traurig, but that was torpedoed after Law 360 published a report that a group of Dewey partners had gone to the Manhattan DA's office and asked him to open up a criminal investigation into the leadership at the firm. And so, you know, what ultimately came from that criminal investigation? Uh, clearly, I, I think we've sort of, there's spoiler alerts in this episode uh, that we sort of know where it went, but sort of walk us through what happened. Well, two years later, in March of 2014, uh, Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance uh, released an indictment against the firm's top three executives mm-hmm. and one low-level employee. Uh, the DA claims there was a massive accounting fraud scheme going on at Dewey uh, in an effort to raise the firm's income in order to feign compliance with lending agreements it had with banks. So during yeah. that period, they indicted these members of the firm, and it was massive amounts, right? Like how many how many so charges I, against them were there? There's well, as far as dollar amounts, it's hundreds of millions of dollars that they're that were on the line for the loans and for this bond offering that they had. But um, in terms of charges, you know, the first case, as um, Stuart saw when he covered that, I wasn't around for the first case, but uh, for the first case, there were around 150 charges against three defendants. (laughs) It's crazy. And uh, the jury really struggled with that. They were out for the longest in, was it um, criminal? It was the longest deliberations uh, in living memory for a New York State criminal case. How uh, long 22 was days. Wow. You were there for like most of those days, right? I was there for every one but of ultimately, those But ultimately, so guys, ultimately what happened? What happened in the first trial? I mean, so, clearly I mean, we're still here. So the, the prosecutors probably turned like deeper shades of green as the jury deliberated. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, eventually there was a mistrial. That's right. The jurors sent out note after note indicating they were confused about a lot of what was going on. Eventually, uh, they came to enough agreement where they acquitted uh, all three defendants Mm -hmm. on dozens of counts of falsifying business records, but deadlocked on all the other charges, including the most serious charges of grand larceny. So that gets us to this second case where they didn't bring it against everybody from the first case, right? 
No, that's right. Uh, former Dewey Chairman Stephen Davis and former Dewey Client Relations Manager Zachary Warren, who's now an associate at Williams & Connolly, incidentally, uh, they both reached deferred prosecution agreements with the DA. Uh, frankly, um, prosecutors just didn't have a lot on uh, either men. So what are the charges involved in the current case, and who are the defendants? So in the current case, former Dewey Executive Director Stephen DeCarmine and Chief Financial Officer Joel Sanders are facing charges of scheme to defraud, securities fraud, and conspiracy. Yeah, it also kind of depends who you ask to, right? Like, who are these people and what charges are they facing? If you ask the defense in this case, yeah. the defense is going to say, well, they've said a lot. And today <laughs> we just heard the closing arguments from Sanders' attorney yesterday, or uh, sorry, um, on Tuesday, we heard the closing arguments from DeCarmine's attorney. And their, their, their line in this case has been, you know, in fact, today we, we got a great metaphor. Um, it was that both of them were officers on a ship, the good ship Dewey. <laughs> <laughs> this was some of the best closing arguments I've ever heard, really. In Andrew Frisch, he's a longtime white-collar attorney who mm -hmm. represents Sanders, painted this picture of how Dewey was a boat and Stephen Davis, its chairman, was its captain. And Brave the financial captain. crisis was a storm. Yeah, an unprecedented and storm. And he did what he had to. <laughs> and to... Stephen Davis chose to sail right through the storm. <laughs> and Joel Sanders, as his chief engineer, was just standing there with a bucket, throwing over water, trying to yeah. keep the ship afloat. Right. Just the it's analogy. A, no, nobody was trying to violate any Coast Guard regulations. As Frisch None. said. None at all. He actually said actually Coast Guard regulations. Oh, I love that. Somehow the Coast Guard in this metaphor was Dewey Auditor Ernst & Young. Oh. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. That's and a very, the cooperating very witnesses were below deck dealing with it was, engine it trouble. Was super so that's what yeah. the defendant said. How did the prosecution frame their case? You know what? I know they're, because their uh, uh, closing arguments are finishing up tomorrow, right? Uh, yeah. The prosecution is actually, so, you know, in New York, the defense gets to go first mm -hmm. and they pre presented their, you know, hearts and minds kind of. Mm -hmm. Um, approach and today the state uh, proceeded with its closing arguments with uh, you know a longtime uh, actual murder prosecutor uh, Dave Drucker. Hmm. He's been with the office for some you know more than thirty years. So he uh, he started today to kind of tr help sum up the state's case and it was interesting to watch because he started to kind of do some jujitsu where he hmm. uh, would pull little points from the defense mm -hmm. and sort of use them as his own. So, yeah. for example, um, the defense, um, you know, tried to say that these cooperators, other Dewey staffers who pled guilty to crimes, uh, lesser crimes, and cooperated with the DA for all these years, um, the defense is trying to say, well, look, these people were coerced into doing this because, you know, who, you know, talking to the jurors, who would want to? Would you ever want to sit on trial like this? Would you ever <laughs> take that chance? No, of course you wouldn't. You would plead guilty like these reasonable people did. And you would let, you know, sort of the DA twist your arm into doing that. Uh, the state's telling of it was, well, no, if you didn't do anything wrong, you wouldn't plead guilty. You wouldn't come up here and testify and have that inconvenience and discomfort. So Drucker was brought in for his trial experience. He's not very well versed in white collar trials, mm -hmm. but he has a long history of prosecuting violent crime. Um, so he's got a lot of hands-on experience under his belt, and it's sort of thought he was brought on to sort of seal the deal uh, in this case. Uh, they, you know, maybe the last trial got a bit too wonky for his own good, and he's a very down-to-earth kind of guy. Seal the deal because 
this, and I think this sort of brings us to a close nicely. That it, it that there, are, there is a lot at stake here, right? For for, for the Manhattan DA, that um, uh, it's 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 a big case as to what happens, uh, you know, what happens after these juries these jurors deliberate. Well, yeah, I mean, Cy Vance, he's he's an elected DA. Mm-hmm. He's relatively new in his office. Um, you know, I actually asked him this question. <laughs> I kind of cornered, <laughs> cornered him sure, at an event. He absolutely yeah. loved that. Well, I mean, you know, he was trying to be candid, and you know, he told me. Um, well, first of all, I asked him whether whether you know having a loss in the last trial affected the way he went about this <laughs> trial, and he told me, well, well, he said to the audience, I, I don't see a hung jury as a loss per se. Yeah, but he well, also the rest of us do. Yeah. Well, he also <laughs> went on to say, you know. Uh, as an elected official, of course, if there's a lot of a lot of eyes on a case. I'm going to think about it more. Um, but yeah, really, it's it, it is a, somewhat a matter of legacy. Yeah. Um, Vance also doesn't have the best record when it comes to white collar cases. Mm-hmm. He had a notable loss in a case against a, a small bank uh, called Abacus Bank. Um, his record is up in the air right now when it comes to the case against former Goldman Sachs programmer uh, Sergei Olenikov. Yeah, the uh, Trade Secrets case, right? Featured yeah. in uh, Michael Lewis's Flash Boys yeah. uh, book. He, so, so, Dewey, so Dewey really is, you know, it's it's his, I think, Jody, was it you who called it his white whale? That was Ed. Oh, that was yeah. Ed, okay. But that's perfect because it goes right along with our storm and ship metaphor right. from earlier. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> So thanks, guys, for bringing all the details here. We'll be watching for this verdict. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you. Guys. We always like to end the show with something a little offbeat. And today we're going to talk about Facebook grants. Bill, tell us what case we have here. <laughs> so the listener might not know, but Amber's my boss. Amber's my editor. She's my boss. You know, she's my manager. So if I was really mad at Amber, which I never am, you know, I might take to to Facebook and I might I might write a really, really nasty sort of profane rant about Amber. And I would want to say you're fired. You would want to say that. But the Second Circuit ruled this week that if I included unionizing activity in said nasty profane rant, that you would be violating the National Labor Relations Act by firing me for saying that. So this doesn't actually break a bunch of new law. NLRB said this for a while, but what's so interesting about this one is how they got kind of to the line of yeah. what you well, can before say. We talk how about bad that, can it be? I just want to point out, Amber was my boss for about a month, and mm-hmm. I waited until I was moved to another part of the newsroom to start posting mean stuff on Facebook. About I appreciate her. it, guys. So, yeah. appreciate Boy, that. are they mean. <laughs> I'm, I'm teasing, of course. Yeah. I, adored, I adored my time working for Amber, and now, so... Yeah, so uh, the this guy, uh, he had a bad interaction with his boss. His name was Hernan Perez, and he worked for a catering company. And uh, he had a, like I said, a bad interaction. And he But this took, was during union organizing. Correct. So let's set the stage there. Uh, correct. It was during uh, a union push um, at his catering company. And he had been a long-time, long-time employee, like 17, 18 years. And he took to Facebook and wrote, and I quote, guys, Bob is such a nasty motherfucker. <laughs> Don't know how to talk to people. <laughs> his mother and his entire fucking family. Whoa. What a loser. 
<laughs> vote yes for the union. I was going to say, wait a second. This wait, is like, ridiculous. And I, I, just, I, would, I would be remiss if I did not mention that there are somewhere, I'm just going to eyeball it here, somewhere between 12 and 21 exclamation points it's in the post. It's a rant. It's you in calves. Have to and it's, in, yeah, it's calves. Yeah. I mean, that goes without saying. But almost. so to lose the protection of the NLRA, uh, you have to, I think it's like opprobrious um, behavior. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I and, mean, basically, you can't, you're not protected by labor law if you physically attack someone sure, sure. you're not protected by labor law if the conduct rises to such a level so yeah did that rise to the level so the second circuit said it did not um it brought up a bunch of other sort of interesting information uh you can read our story on law 360 vin guerreri our labor reporter who was on last week uh he wrote a really interesting story about it but uh they basically said that um that this did not reach that threshold there were uh that that you know that that People had used profanity in the workplace, and no one yeah. had ever been sanctioned before. And so it and has he, to be out of line with with the the. And accept- he didn't. And he didn't make a scene in like exactly. the, in the workplace. He like stepped out. And all exactly, that stuff. but it yeah. raises all sorts of interesting things because we see idiots post things on Facebook all the sure. time. And crazy companies uncle and hate that. Right. I mean, companies are constantly monitoring social right. media to see what is being said about. So them. well, so what the court said was that this is okay, <laughs> but. You are reaching the outer limit of what is okay. The, the, to quote them, they said, uh, seems to us to sit at the outer bounds of protected union-related comments. I would love, I mean, in my ideal world, I would love some kind of court test that's like a binary for like, which of George Carlin's like seven dirty words can you say and not say under the under the umbrella of union speech or, right, or I un- want, union activity. Right, and, I want like a list of words that are okay. And yeah. everything has to, at the end, be say what this guy said, which was, vote yes for the union. Yeah, vote yes for the union. Point. Yeah, so if you want to, I think the key takeaway here is write whatever you want about your boss, just make sure that you include something about a union. As the boss fine. in this room, I hate this key takeaway. It's terrible. <laughs> but in fairness, I mean, this guy was arguably expressing, and the court said this, to a group of peers that were also part of this unionizing drive, how he felt about conditions at work. Yeah. Hey, Bill. F- your mother. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been a pleasure recording with you, Al. Always. Oh, thanks, guys. Um, that's going to wrap up our show today. I uh, want to thank these guys for talking with me. Hopefully next week will be a little less profane. Thanks, Bill. We'll try. Thanks, Alex. No promises. We have several other people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Keller Marcano and Stephen Trader. We'd also like to thank our guests, Jody Godoy and Stuart Bishop, for joining us. Join us next week.